A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin, and of course you would be right, but then again, so has everything else been since the fall. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in and around the world of politics. Today, we're going to be joined by a returning guest. Miriam Cates is the Conservative MP for Peniston and Stocksbridge. We'll hear more about her work around the online safety bill and also her take on the treatment of politicians within Parliament. But first... Today, I want to talk about our addiction to social media. Browsing the news websites over the last few days, it's clear that social media continues to change the way we relate to one another, generate and report breaking news, and even the way in which our political leaders govern the country. The Telegraph is currently drip-feeding a series of revelations pulled from thousands of WhatsApp messages. These were sent and then received by the then Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, and other senior government figures at the height of the COVID pandemic. As Luke 8.17 tells us, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. In other words, if you wouldn't want the world to know all about a thing that you think, then don't put it in a WhatsApp message. Oh, and, and don't be a Wally and hand it all on a plate to a journalist. A reminder that one of the most important things a politician can pray for is wisdom. Anyhow, according to the BBC, Twitter HQ has become so dysfunctional that it no longer deploys enough staff to stem the tide of hate, disinformation and abuse being spread through its app. A fake story can travel around the world in minutes and will be accepted as fact by millions. And a number of secondary schools have been taken by surprise by pupils coordinating disruptive protests, in many cases supported by their parents, through TikTok. Andy Warhol once said that everyone will be famous for 15 minutes, but social media allows everyone to be famous all the time. It compels people to show themselves to be the wittiest and the prettiest, to influence the ideas and actions of thousands, even millions of others, and to say things that we would never have said to each other in person. But these boundaries are becoming blurred and increasingly NHS and retail staff, teachers and public figures are receiving abuse to their faces and no longer simply from behind the screen. But there are also many positive uses of social media. It shines a light in some of the darkest corners of the world. Much of our news about the dreadful happenings in Ukraine have come from the Twitter accounts of those on the ground or with close contacts in the war zones. It is very hard for Putin's propaganda machine to cover up reports from so many sources. At home, one example that will hopefully have a beneficial impact is a new government campaign being conducted via Facebook to encourage tenants to report dangerous social housing conditions. As an MP, I find Twitter a good way to communicate with my constituents, many of whom might not consider picking up the phone or sending me a letter or an email via conventional routes. Social media is also a great resource for Christians to learn from wise and well-studied people from all over the world, often for free, and to develop our theological understanding of issues that we may not otherwise consider. However, it is also a reminder that Christians are just as prone to falling into the traps of inconsiderate behaviour as others. I know I've said intemperate things on social media and let myself down from time to time. How should Christians be praying then and engaging in the choppy social media waters in which we now swim? Jesus gives us an important warning about the need to be wise as serpents 
and innocent as doves. We can't necessarily control the tone of others' debate, but we can be careful about how we participate. We can step away from culture war triggers that encourage people to take outrage and polarised stances on hot button issues. Let's pray for others as they engage in such debates, for people to stop and think about the impact of their words before they post. All our discourse ought to be seasoned with grace. All discussions about the gospel ought to be motivated by our desire to see people come to know Jesus, not to own someone with a killer put down. If we take part in any form of public debate, let us seek to live out our values as Christians, to speak with gentleness and kindness, loving our neighbours, indeed loving our enemies. Let's teach our children to be discerning and pray for wisdom for them as they learn to navigate the social media minefields for themselves. And let us learn a lesson from Matt Hancock. Uh, we should only ever say things in private or on social media that we would not be ashamed of if they ended up in public, remembering that in all things we are always accountable to the audience of one who is sovereign over all things. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, so to our guest this week, we're delighted to be joined again by the MP for Penniston and Stocksbridge, the Conservative MP who gained that seat from the Labour Party in 2019, Miriam Cates. Hello, Miriam. Hello, Tim. Well, it's great to have you with us uh, again. I want to talk really this week about something you've been very involved with, which is the Online Harms Bill, which is in its uh, journey through Parliament, not completed its journey yet. Let's assume no knowledge whatsoever. What is it? Well, first of all, it's now called the Online Safety Bill. I think it was a, in one of its iteration an online harms bill, but I think that's indicative of how much it's changed. Um, so a long time ago, well before I was in Parliament, the government brought in something called the Digital Economy Act, which was to try and regulate the internet. Of course, uh, government has to play catch up with technological revolutions uh, and the internet is, is, is no exception to that. But part of the Digital Economy Act was not implemented and that was the part that would have regulated uh, some of the extreme content on, on the internet and hopefully stopped children from seeing it. Now, we don't quite know why that wasn't implemented, but it wasn't. But the government's uh, kind of answer to that was, well, don't worry, we'll bring forward this online safety or online harms bill to try and regulate the Internet and stop children, particularly seeing some of the worst content uh, that's available. And time went on. And of course, we had numerous different elections. Uh, but in the 2019 manifesto, the Conservative Party promised again to end uh, children seeing some of these uh, hideous materials. And so from around that time, this online safety bill started to be built. It was originally narrowly focused around children, but it got widened in scope as it went through Parliament uh, and many other things have been added to it. But at its core, the idea is to stop children viewing things like pornography, self-harm material, um, so that they don't, you know, they're not damaged by what they can see online. Um, so that's the kind of um, idea behind it. But there have been many arguments about it because a lot of people, probably a lot of your listeners, have been worried about some of the impacts on free speech. So at one point, the government uh, was intending to ban anything that was legal but harmful. So you, there are certain things that you might be able to say lawfully, but might cause people harm. Now, I completely see the argument for that from a free speech point of view. But on the other hand, some things that are legal very much harm children and draw them into deeper harms, which can be illegal. So they're quite difficult um, arguments and a lot of grey areas, really. So thanks very much for setting that out for us, Miriam. Now, your amendment, uh, which you put earlier this year, would have done what to the bill or would do what to the bill? 
Well, our amendment, which we believe the government will introduce in the Lords, so that was the agreement that we came to, um, will add criminal liability to tech directors who fail to keep children safe. So the bill has within it already quite significant fines if the big tech companies allow children to see, let's say, pornography or self-harm material. Um, But we didn't feel that was enough. Um, because these companies are huge. Some of them have got billions and billions of dollars sat in the bank. Uh, And also it's very easy for the big bosses to kind of write off those kind of amounts. It doesn't have a personal consequence for them necessarily. Uh, And we felt, so a number of um, Conservative MPs, but also uh, a number of Labour MPs have tried to bring this in at different stages of the bill, that really if you are allowing, knowingly allowing these hideous harms to children, there should at least be the threat of going to jail. Um, and so we've introduced this senior manager liability, which means that if well, we, we intend this to be the case anyway, the amendment's not been laid yet. But if um, a tech company, a manager of a tech company knowingly allows these harms to happen to children, they could be prosecuted with personal fines and personal time in jail. And there's plenty of precedent for that in our law already, for example, on construction sites. Uh, If a manager allows someone to come to harm, not only can the company be fined, but that manager could be put in prison. Financial services has similar rules. So there is precedent. But we thought that we in order to really deter tech companies from allowing these harms to children, we needed to go further. So to achieve this, you obviously um, raised the matter on the floor of the House of Commons during the debate. You secured a promise from the minister responding to the dispatch box that this would be an amendment that would be added from the government side of the bill in the House of Lords. I'm I'm assuming that that wasn't the only conversation that you had on the floor of the House of Commons. That there were there were there were there were chats. We don't have smoke filled rooms anymore. Uh, probably, <laughs> probably not even vape filled. <laughs> they're all by yes, exactly. The nanny state, Miriam. <laughs> uh, so, but um, but uh, but but yes. Yeah, so you're. But I'm assuming you had conversations with ministers and officials to try to persuade them of the of the wisdom of this. Yes, so it was, it's been really interesting how it's happened. And I personally, as a new MP, have learned an awful lot about the process and how to engage with ministers and bring bring change. And so what happened was um, a Labour MP, Margaret Hodge, introduced a similar amendment at one of the many stages that this bill has had in the Commons last term. Um, And, you know, I spoke in favour of that amendment because I thought it was a good idea, although I didn't know an awful lot about it at the time. And a number of other MPs did. And Sir Bill Cash, who is a veteran MP, many of your listeners will know him as Mr. Brexit. Uh, He's 82 years old and still very much active in the House of Commons. He saw the debate on his TV. We all have TV screens in our parliamentary office so we can watch the debates that are going on. Uh, He came up from his office and sat through the debate, listening really carefully um, and when we were asked to vote on it, he and I abstained because we, you know, we weren't quite sure about Margaret Hodge's amendment, but we certainly didn't support the government's line of, of rejecting it. And we sat there as everybody else went through the commons, went through the lobbies. We sat there on the back row and he said, I think we can do something about this. And he spent the next week in the public bill office and in the library, in the commons, searching for precedents. How can we make this legally possible? How can we convince the government that this kind of amendment could actually work? 
Uh, and he came up with something and we put it down at the next stage uh, of the bill to test it. And the government obviously didn't accept it. But we did get quite a lot of support from Conservative MPs at that stage. And that got us a meeting with the ministers where we could start to discuss this. Now, at this point, they were still telling us it wasn't possible. And I think what was DCMS, the department that covers this stuff, is was inherently conflicted because on the one hand, they're trying to attract tech investment. On the other hand, they're trying to regulate the tech companies. So, you know, they were conflicted. But we then went away over Christmas and we managed to get uh, legal support to write uh, a decent amendment and the support of the NSPCC, who worked very hard on this to gather support of their members and do some polling for us. And then we gained the support of 50 Conservative MPs for our amendment, which meant that had it been pushed to the vote, because we knew all the opposition MPs would support it, we could potentially have defeated the government. Now, that wasn't our intention, but in order to um, have a good negotiating position, we needed those numbers. And we used an amazing uh, relationship with a journalist at The Telegraph who was brilliant on this. So it was really Parliament and the media working at their best uh, to, to come to this agreement. And I think, you know, a lot of the papers put it down as a toy rebellion. It wasn't. We're just scrutinising legislation. We supported the online harms bill. Um, but really, it was a great education for me in how Parliament can work when everything comes together. It's a wonderful story. And it is absolutely a great example of how Parliament is meant to work, that you coordinated a, a, a cross party, but actually a very broad based campaign. Uh, which involve people outside of Parliament, charities, media, and so on, uh, and indeed, I'm sure, demonstrating to the government that they might lose if they put if they were put to it. So, strength of argument and strength of numbers um, yes. really helped. So, uh, nothing mucky about that business at all. It's getting something good done by using the mechanisms available to us. Before we move on, perhaps to our our next subject, you mentioned about the government's. I think governments of all colours, I should say, being conflicted uh, mm. about this. Conflicted, perhaps, as you say, because of a desire to uh, attract tech investment. Is there also maybe sometimes a conflict? Because maybe in our society, two people don't see the harm in some of these things. Pornography, for example, is um, considered not to be a harm by many people. Yeah, I think for people of our generation, it's really hard to put ourselves in the shoes of, of young people who are surrounded by online, who live online, especially post-pandemic. And I think if you think back to when we were growing up uh, and previous generations, the only influences on a child's mind, on their ideas, on their values, on their character were parents, wider family, school and community. So church or, um, you know, faith groups, uh, community groups, things like that. Parents had a fairly good control it, for good reasons over the influences on their children. And good parents could make sure that young children were not exposed to pornography, harmful ideas, um, ideas that are fine for adults to consider, but not for children. Now, in the Internet age, you know, these harms, these influences from all over the world, and now in a child's bedroom mm. at any time they want and often completely outside of parents' control. Um, and so, you know, I think um, when you look at the statistics about how many young girls have attempted self-harm, how many boys having seen pornography think that girls want uh, to feel pain during sexual activity. I mean, it's just frightening how quickly a whole generation's minds have been changed about these issues. And I think if you extrapolate that into the future, what does that mean for normal relationships between men and women going forward? What does it mean uh, for ideas about um, keeping healthy and uh, and even obeying the law in some circumstances? If you look at influences like um, Andrew Tate, 
Um, and I think we've completely underestimated the power of ideas and the power of images uh, in young people's uh, minds. And you know, their, their minds are not developed yet in order to be able to, to cope with these things. I think, and, and I think what really strikes me is, is what Jesus says in Matthew 18 about how anyone who leads one of these little ones astray, it would be better for them to have a millstone uh, tied around their neck and thrown in the, into the sea. And I can see why, because if you mislead a child, if you damage them, if you abuse them, if you harm them, if you leave them astray at a tender age, it's very difficult, humanly speaking, for them ever to recover. And we see that whether that's abusive relationships or, you know, domestic challenges, but also now in the harms that are coming from the Internet. And, you know, personally, as a Christian, I think we should do anything we can to protect children from those harms, even if it means locking people up um, and challenging vested interests, which is always difficult for governments to do. A mucky business with Tim Farron. We're talking to Miriam Cates, Member of Parliament for Peniston and Stocksbridge. Uh, Miriam, what you've done in Parliament in terms of dealing with the online safety bill and trying to protect children is massively commendable and your passion is something which is, is infectious on this. But I wonder whether we could talk about another form of online harm, if you like. And I read just this week a, an article from our colleague, Vicky Ford, who's the uh, Conservative MP for Chelmsford. And she talks about uh, online abuse of parliamentary colleagues, but particularly of women. And she writes as follows. She says, another two colleagues have been lucky to escape with their lives after extremely violent attacks. Threats to MPs have become almost commonplace. One female colleague recently explained to me that she'd received three death threats in one week and another spent her birthday dealing with a constituent who was threatening to slit her throat and that of her staff. And there's lots more in that article, which is really, really troubling. Does that ring any bells with you, Miriam? Yes, and some of the um, messages we receive or things that are written about us on Twitter, for example, are just horrific. And I think, you know, you become desensitised to it because you see it so much. But when you stop to think about it, it is it is awful. You know, we're just trying to do our job. We're, you know, being elected by constituents to do, to speak out on certain things. And, um, you know, it, it is horrible. And I completely understand why so many people, especially women, are put off um, coming into politics. I think you also feel very exposed. Mm. Um, and, you know, we could probably have a long discussion about whether Matt Hancock was wise to pass over his WhatsApp messages. But the consequences of that is that, you know, all of us now, I mean, the Telegraph published some messages that I sent privately to my whip. Uh, last night that's in the telegraph fortunately I don't think it's anything too um, awful but you know it makes you feel incredibly exposed anything you do or say or even think could be misconstrued and could make you a target of attack Um, and I think you know how do you deal with it well one you do just get a thicker skin Um, but also I think as Christians we are told to expect persecution now I'm not sure that's whether that's persecution or just outright outrageous behaviour. But you know, we are not told to expect an easy ride, particularly if we stand up for uh, things that are right and true. Um, and you know, just reading in my, my Bible app today, today's uh, verse is uh, from Esther. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. And I think and I don't know whether you found this, Tim, but when you first stand up mm. in the House of Commons or in the media for something that you believe because of your faith, but you know is probably not the popular opinion, it's incredibly exposed and you think, mm. why am I doing this? Why don't I duck out of this? Can't I arrange a meeting for this time so I don't have to do it? But, you know, the more you step into it, the realise, you know, when I die, when I 
you know, go to heaven. I want to know that I've done everything I can um, to obey God in this place, however difficult that might be for me and my family. And nothing really is worth sacrificing that, um, even for abuse, even for, you know, poor write-ups in the Telegraph, whatever it is. Um, and yes, we have to be wise. And I don't think it's right to try and in, as individuals fight every battle, step into everything just because it's controversial. Of course not. That wouldn't be wise. But I think, you know, we have to make a choice in this place, don't we? Who, who are we serving? Um, who's our audience? And it can be very conflicted. But, you know, we try. Really powerful. And that's a, a, a massively commendable what you say and amen to it. I think that I mean, I, so I've been in this place for 18 years now. I've been a party leader and I'm a bloke. And I think I get I've I've had death threats and so on, but I get a a smaller amount of it than MPs who are women who have been in Parliament for two or three years. So it does feel like it is often directed at women. And while some of the grief we get might be if we're Christians might be because Mm -hmm. we are seeking to be faithful in the public square. A lot of it is just horrible and, and nothing to do with what we think. And it's a do you think that um we as uh, politicians, the media, society as a whole, bear responsibility for the tone of the debate that we sometimes are party to? Yes, I do think so. Um, both politicians and journalists. I mean, if you hear how some well-known interviewers uh, on Radio 4, for example, interview politicians, a, a total lack of respect of even tolerance and patience to hear what they say. And of course, that does feed into this wider narrative that politicians are not there to be respected, we're there to be attacked. Um, I agree the way we speak to each other as well. I had an interesting experience. I was on any questions um, last week. And before we um, had the panel discussion, we had dinner together and we had the MPs on the show and we had a fantastic chat. I didn't know the other two MPs that were on it particularly well. We had a great time sharing stories about how we got into politics. No, no real points of difference, just a genuine warmth. Um, And then during the show, of course, you know, um, the way that some people spoke was very aggressive, needlessly attacking, uh, making personal comments about other politicians. And then after the show, it was all hugs and smiles again. And I think, you know, it, I find that quite difficult to cope with because, um, you know, we want, yes, of course, we should have people having policy arguments in public, but yeah. we should be doing that respectfully. And if we can't even model that ourselves, when it's not even real because we actually do get on with each other, then how can we hope for the public to to treat us with respect? So, uh, yeah, I, we, we don't help ourselves. But I, I think also um, it's a wider cultural thing, possibly driven by social media. If you look at some of the chats on the community groups on Facebook, for example, in my constituents, People are just going at each other all the time. Uh, They're not even people in in public positions or anything like that, but it's just a general coarsening of debate um, that I think goes right through society at whatever level. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're going to have to draw our conversation to a close now, sadly, because I think we've got a lot more we can say, particularly in how we as Christians, and I don't just mean us as members of Parliament, anybody out there can contribute to a softening of debate. Uh, mm. curiosity about what other people think, a kindness towards them and an ability to uh, not coin a phrase, to disagree well. Um, Miriam, wonderful yeah. to have you on the show. Fantastic. <laughs> have a wonderful Thank day. you. Each week we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question that you'd like about this mucky business of politics. 
It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. Well, I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer. So please do drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. And there is a very strong chance I'll be answering it on an episode over the next few weeks. Well, this week, I'd be really grateful to hear from Steve Webb. I don't think it's the Steve, well, it is a Steve Webb, but it's uh, maybe not the former Lib Dem MP Steve Webb. But this, this Stephen says, what do you think about the leaking of the WhatsApp messages to the Telegraph by Isabel Oakshot? In politics and in public life, more widely, is there a tension between trustworthiness, honesty and public interest? How can this tension be resolved as a Christian? Well, I don't know all the ins and outs about non-disclosure agreements and the extent to which Isabel Oakeshott has formally break, broken any kind of legal agreement with uh, Matt Hancock. But I must say that generally speaking, not generally speaking, absolutely speaking, the Bible is very clear of the significance and the value, the importance of truth and telling the truth. Uh, it, we are, I think, as Christians, therefore uh, obliged to be to be truthful and to keep promises. And to leak a secret or a series of secrets that somebody gave to you in confidence feels to me to be a bit grubby, no matter how interesting that secret might be. There are things that I know that politicians of other political parties have said to me, nothing too lurid, don't worry, but things that could be interesting, possibly even damaging, that I'm just not going to share. And I'm not going to share them, not because I'm a terribly virtuous person, though I am seeking to be obedient to God in keeping that to myself, but also because my integrity matters. And if I want people to take me seriously when I speak about anything, including and especially the gospel, then I don't want to be somebody who people distrust. And so making sure that you keep a promise, indeed keeping a secret, particularly if it's not something that is of, uh, would be of, of harm if you didn't keep it, then I think that um, you must do so. You must make sure that you retain that integrity. Having said all that, there is much in what Isabel Oakeshott has leaked, which is in the public interest. It's not just of interest to the public. And so it's a tough uh, balancing act. Um, but I take the view that there don't seem to be any um, or many acts of righteousness in this particular episode, not from those uh, exposed in the WhatsApp conversations, nor in the part of the one who leaked them. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's close in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for Miriam, Miriam Cates. We thank you for her work. Thank you that she reminded us of Matthew 18 of uh, the absolute importance of protecting children and not leading them to any harm at all. Lord, we thank you that in this technological age that Parliament is seeking, however slowly, to catch up with the technology and to protect young people who could be harmed. We thank you for um, the work in Parliament that has led to potentially those people who might be responsible, either by deliberate design or negligence, putting young people uh, in harm's way, uh, making sure they are held to account. We pray for a successful conclusion to that legislation and that people will be protected from online harm. Uh, we pray, Father, for us as a society uh, to cleave to your ways, um, to seek to follow you, um, that we would be um, impatient to, um, to move towards a society where uh, abuse and the normalisation of, of wicked behaviour becomes something which we turn against. 
And we pray, Father, also for uh, those who serve in politics. We particularly think of women who are very often at the sharp end of not just Internet abuse, but spilling over into verbal and even physical assaults. Uh, This is outrageous, Lord, and we pray against it. We pray for Christians to model a correct response when we are put under pressure, that we would also not be adding to the um, pool of tension and of uh, hostility that we would speak and tweet seasoned with grace, even when we disagree with the other side. Help us, Lord, to serve you in this place, uh, in Parliament and in social media. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash a mucky business. Thank you.